V1. Pull up. Pull up. Pull up. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. Terrain. Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And, uh, of course, the three of us are kind of in the box, if you will, with uh, with regard to this episode. Um, I think the last time that I was talking to you guys, I was sitting in a parked car in a parking lot in an undisclosed location. But <laughs> I was actually working. I was on the road. Um, and just bringing this up, since I was on the road and I was under a little time crunch, I failed to follow my own protocols when it comes to verifying and vetting information that I read off the internet. And no, I don't believe that everything that's on the internet is true. And normally I take the time to run it to ground and, and that kind of thing before I shoot off my mouth. But in the haste of trying to make a point, I errantly made a statement that I attributed to some article that I read that um, that uh, involved some litigation and a number of 50% of the NTSB's accident probable causes are wrong. Now, while I have my own personal opinion about that, in this show we've dissected accidents where we have determined that probable cause statements have been wrong, I will retract that and I will apologize to the NTSB because I failed to follow my own protocols. And that is try to vet this information before I actually use it. However, I will stand by my guns when it comes to looking at the accident reports and the probable causes. And I will say, I'm, I'm pretty confident of this one, is that I believe that at least 50%, if not a little more, of the NTSB's reports, especially over about the last maybe 10 to 15 years, are incomplete. And again, on this show, we have dissected accidents. We haven't had to hunt them down. We mm -hmm. haven't had to scrutinize thousands of them to find them. We just randomly go get them because we think they're of interest and we find a lot of errors or we, lot of, we find a lot of omissions of critical information that would not only support a better or more factual probable cause, but then there are some safety issues that aren't being addressed, whether it's through the report itself to educate the reader or serve as the basis for safety recommendations. So while I do apologize to the NTSB for saying 50% of their <laughs> probable causes are wrong, well, they're just incomplete. And, and I'm going to stick to it with that because Again, we're going to show how incomplete 
their report and their probable causes are with the accident that we're going to dissect in this episode involving a helicopter, a Hughes 269C. It's a single engine piston driven helicopter that was being operated by a commercial pilot that had several thousand hours. He had rented the helicopter and was going to go out on a personal flight. The aircraft, he took it off. He was flying around and at altitude around four to 5,000 feet. He was trying to, uh, to change the throttle settings and had a problem changing the throttle setting and found that uh, he could not control the throttle. He ended up um, really not losing control of the aircraft, but losing control of the power setting needed to sustain flight. And his built in and in his inability to control that, uh, he ended up damaging the helicopter. When you the NTSB wrote a very very scant uh, report, it's obvious they didn't go out. It's obvious that uh, the FAA, when they went out and collected the information, collected bare bones information. I mean, bare bones information. Um, they went to the obvious, and that was. Once they started looking at the helicopter, they found that the throttle mounting bracket that goes on the engine, there's, a, there's a, an area where that uh, cable mounting bracket um, resides on the airframe. They found that that was hanging loose off the throttle cable. And so, boom, investigation's done. They write it off that it was a uh, improperly installed mounting bracket because the engine had been taken off another helicopter and an install and installed in the accident helicopter 10 hours previous. And so they attributed to maintenance that they screwed up. They, they did not mount this uh, throttle mounting bracket properly and voila, that was the cause. And the probable cause, and, and I'm, I'm, I was just going to say, John, the, the, the probable cause reflected that very simplistic overview of this accident. All, you know, hey, it was the maintenance personnel. They screwed up, caused this accident. Now, we've talked about it off air, and we all have our, you know, concerns about not only this report, but a lot of information that's lacking. And definitely, this is not an accident that anyone, even maintenance personnel, can learn from because it doesn't really give you the history, the background, the backstory, if you will as to how these things evolve. And of course, the investigator never examined other things that we think are, uh, are important to this particular accident. So I'll start with you, John, and just getting your flavor since this is a maintenance-focused accident. Well, this accident first was brought to my attention by folks in the UK. They were using this accident, uh, for example, for pilots to check their airplanes and do a good free flight and uh, look around since this airplane, the engine and everything, the controls are out in the open. You could see virtually everything that controls this helicopter. But the frustration that I've had with this accident and so many for the last 30 years has been the investigators don't go any further than saying it was a maintenance problem. If this were a flight crew problem, we'd have human factors, several pages. We'd have all sorts of data going um, being available for, for people to analyze. But this just says maintenance did it. Did they have the paperwork? Were they following a job procedures card? Or were they using just the manual? Were they using just their manual memory? 
Where were they? How many people were involved? Was this a multiple shift? So taking the helicopter engine off one and moving it to another one, that tells me that there was probably at least four people involved in it and maybe multiple shifts. Well, that's important. We've been fighting the shift issue and turnovers since uh, Continental Express 40 years ago. Maybe it's not quite 40, but it was a long time ago. Uh, you know, well, when you look at an operation like this, it's a, a flying club or flying school. Um, you, you probably have very limited maintenance personnel. So rather than having an abundance of maintenance personnel, you have basically a deficiency in the number of maintenance personnel. So you have to look at it uh, in you know, both regards because you got a guy now who's trying to change maybe this engine by him or herself because we really don't know any background on the maintenance personnel, they didn't even get into whether or not that was really an AMP mechanic or an IA or both. And then you brought up a good point, John, is because of all these multiple people and then the multiple processes that are involved, where is the system of checks and balances between the person who did the, the work and the guy who inspects it and signs it off as a return to service? And, and then Todd... I'm sorry. And Todd, I know that, you know, you and I chatted um, because one of the things you asked was, well, didn't they fly it after they did the, the engine change? And this, this is a rental aircraft, a rental helicopter. And I don't know about you, but if I'm running a rental operation, I don't care if I'm running cars, lawnmowers or whatever. It's like if there's major maintenance on something, I want to have some assurance or give the customer some assurance that, hey, we check this out before we put it in the air again. It's like you're not the first person to touch this, this aircraft. Okay, who was? I looked into the public docket figuring, oh, they probably asked some reasonable questions like, oh, it was 10 hours since the engine change. Who flew it in the 10 hours before? There was no there there. I'm looking for the narrative background of this report. There was like a lot of blank space. So I'm left hanging. So, you know, unlike and what you were saying earlier, it may not be 100% wrong, this, this um, uh, probable cause, but it leaves me 100% hanging. I don't know what happened, and they didn't write it down. And there's a lot of unanswered questions, of course, like you just brought up. Why didn't anybody talk to those people? Because apparently the aircraft flew for 10 hours and something, I mean, I guess everybody thought either that was normal and they didn't write it up, or it had been installed maybe at one point, and was it improperly installed to the point where they put a nut and a bolt on it, but the nut backed off and the and on this particular flight, it finally came loose. I mean, those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked and answered. You can't just write this off to a simplistic probable cause. John, you're always banging on maintenance and, and you know, looking at the fact that we don't go deep enough, looking at the sequence of events that led up to the problem with the maintenance folks. I mean, again, they may have done it right but they may have missed a step. What procedures did they follow? You brought up, you know, did they do it by memory? Because they've done it so many times. They were in a hurry. Was there time pressure? Because this is a revenue helicopter. It's a revenue generator. So what were they doing? Why are they swapping engines out of another helicopter? Apparently they were in a hurry to get this aircraft back in the air. These are the kinds of things that while, you know, to our audience and definitely some investigators at the NTSB going, that doesn't matter. It does matter 
because you have to set the sequence of events. You got to look at the backstory. You got to understand how these people got there on that particular day, that particular time with a helicopter that was deficient and should it have ever left the ground, either because of maintenance, finding the problem, not correcting the problem, or a pilot on his pre-flight finding that, uh-oh, this aircraft's unairworthy. I can't fly it today. You know, if that bracket was coming loose, it should have been out uh, very easy to tell as you turn the throttle because you would have that sloppy feeling in the beginning and you would you'd be able to know that. Same thing with throttles, when the throttle cable. You're moving the throttle. If you just move it a little bit and it's doing nothing, there's something wrong. And and the point that you brought up about all that data getting plugged in, well, that's money. You know, there's a reason. I haven't looked at it lately, but at one point in time, there was 10 times as much money put into human factors in the cockpit than was any uh, efforts in the hangar. But yet we both, the maintenance people and the pilots, experience the same kinds of problems every single day. The only difference is the pilots are in the air. Is that worth 10 times more money in the cockpit than it is on the ground? I don't think so. We're not putting the resources on, into the ground personnel that need to go in there to bring them up to a higher level than they, were, than they are today. And it's been ongoing for 30 plus years. And uh, yeah, I, I'm a broken record on this. I've been fighting for it since the 80s and, uh, and losing. And I'm well, a sole loser. And it's very fortunate in this particular event that it wasn't a more serious injury involved because uh, this wasn't over the flat farm fields of the Midwest. This was in Puget Sound area near the foothills of the Cascades. A lot of trees, a lot of uneven ground. And the pilot put it into some trees and survived. But this is not something that would have been easy to do, even for an experienced pilot. And fortunately, now, it happened at altitude. The yeah. pilot had some time to figure things out, put it in auto rotation and put it down. But imagine this happening 100 feet off the deck. What well, the other thing is, if this aircraft had become a smoking hole, if you will, if he had hit very hard and didn't survive this accident and there was a lot more damage to this aircraft, would the NTSB have found that bracket and found it, you know, errantly, you know, not in its proper mounting position? Wild Those guess here. I think the probable cause would have said something about pilot error. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. And because... You know, when you look at it, and these are the, I have read articles and we're going to put the links up and I apologize to those folks that were looking for a link to some of the stuff I was saying. Um, again, I apologize because uh, I didn't bet it. Um, I found that uh, some of that stuff was uh, piecemealed together and conglomerated to, uh, to come up with some numbers that I could not corroborate. However, I will say, that USA Today, back in 2014, wrote a two-part article about what we're talking about with the quality and the quantity of accident investigations. And they found a very high number of probable causes that were not supported by the facts. And there have been others. And we will post those links um, for our viewers to uh, to be able to read and, and see what we're talking about. And again, we're not being critical in any of these accidents only for the very reason that, you know, it's nothing against the board and the people that work there. It's against their philosophy, and that is brevity. We cannot improve aviation safety with accident reports like this, where 
you didn't need, and in this case, they didn't leave the office to figure this out. Okay, you got a broken bracket, but you got to tell me why. You got to tell me how it got there, or you got to tell me that it was improperly mounted. Well, you got to tell me why, and you got to support it, because there's nothing in the docket that supports how that bracket got there the way it was. That's the important stuff. That's the basis. So if you have to go back and make corrective changes, is there a correction to be done to the policies and the procedures? Is there a correction that needs to take place where you have another site, another level of oversight in the inspection process? Because it's obvious somebody missed all of this. And then, of course, do you put in a protocol that, you know what, we do an engine change, we're going to fly that aircraft before we turn it loose. So those are the learning lessons. That's the safety recommendations. Those are the safety benefits and improvements. And nothing like that resides in this report. And you sure as hell, sorry, you sure as heck cannot get that out of a report like this. Yeah, it's just, it's just another tragedy. These are, when I read these, these are painful to me because it's an opportunity to make improvements and we just blow it by. Yep, maintenance screwed up, move on. Yeah, I mean, it goes deeper than that. And, and that's what we try to do. That's what we look for. That's the reason we point these things out. And that's why we sound so critical is because there is so many opportunities for the industry, especially the general aviation industry, who always takes a back seat to the major investigations or the bulk investigations that the board does where they send multiple investigators out. Um, and, and we miss a lot. And you were talking about human factors, John. And yes, when you look at the money that is spent and the way they dissect human performance in the cockpit between a pilot or multiple pilots, yeah, we have an inordinate amount of you know, historical information. But as we've talked about on this show, everything that happens in the cockpit 99.8% of the time happens on the shop floor in some way, shape, or form in the human factors arena. And they are just as important. I depend them on a maintenance guy or a gal because one, I'm a pilot. And the last thing I want is a problem up there. And if there's a problem, I want to stay on the ground to find it or fix it. And, and I, I have a lot of tacit trust in that that aircraft has been worked on. The work has been done in accordance with whatever manual or approved procedure that the airplane when it, or the helicopter, when it's returned to service, it's good to go. And I'm just there on a pre-flight, doing a thorough pre-flight to inspect, to make sure that, yep, everything was as it should be for the return to service. But I mean, there are just so many lessons to be learned just from this very simplistic accident. And, and it's just sad that this report does not reflect the good stuff that people who are reading it could learn from. And when we look at these events, often we look at both the final report and the public docket, which is supporting documentation. Sometimes the public docket has some extraordinary stuff that really gives you context of what's going on, really gives you a flavor of what nuance might have been happening here. This public docket didn't give us that opportunity. There's no data there. There's no there there. There's no nuance. I'm just left guessing. It's like if it's not in the final report and they're not answering the obvious questions like, okay, this thing was was loose. Why was it loose? I'm not asking them to ask answer why 10 times. How about once or twice? Give me something. They didn't yeah, give me and, anything. 
And you know what, when you, and we use the NTSB database as well as the FAA database and, and some other things to try and do trends. I'm not sure if this accident, unless you use very specific keywords, would pop up as a maintenance accident per se. And if it did, you really got to get into it to see, okay, well, what was the maintenance accident? Well, with the brevity of this report, you don't know. You know that somebody touched this aircraft because they changed the engine. But like John was saying, you don't know what the process was. You don't know how many people were involved. Where was the inspection oversight? Where was the return to service? Given the fact that there, there was a 100-hour inspection done at the same, same time they did the engine change, that's a more comprehensive inspection. How did people miss this? If in it fact- Was it was the same person who did it? Yeah. I mean, that's an important piece right there. Guy, guy changed the engine and now he does 100 hours on the airplane. I mean, where's the paperwork? Where's the second look? Is there a second look? I mean, just... Ah, yeah, you know. Even something as simple as, okay, this was it was 10 hours since the engine change. Were these 10 hours over 48 hours or 10 hours over 48 days? I don't know. How yeah. frequently was this aircraft flying? How frequently were people inspecting this aircraft pre-flight? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's let's just assume... That, you know, these uh, over these 10 hours, it was 10 one hour flights. That was 10 pilots doing a pre-flight that all missed it. Well, the same I, pilot not doing a pre-flight 10 times. We don't know what the yeah. answer is because there is no information that gives us those answers. You know, and, and to get to what you said, Greg, about finding the report in the uh, in the database, I couldn't find it when I first went looking for this. And I had to go back to to my friends outside of the U S and ask them if they have the date of the accidents mm. and they were able to give me the end number and the date. And then I was able to find it. Otherwise I spent half a morning trying to find it, uh, you know, on Catherine's report and all the, all the typical places I couldn't find it mm. came right up once I had the end number, but without that, you, you just couldn't pull up an accident like this. And it's a, it's a good one for a maintenance study. I mean, yeah. it's a real good one. Because of everything that we've already mentioned, double engine, double uh, uh, engine change essentially, uh, the personnel involved, the paperwork involved, the uh, hours involved. I mean, there's a lot of issues buried in here that that get written off in in 20 words and one sentence. Yeah, and it's just it it is a good learning lesson because, like you said, not only is it a maintenance, but then you got to really find out where was the pilot in all of this. And is the pilot, you know, really just an innocent, you know, victim of, of a maintenance error or was there some contributory factor there? Um, the fact that he was able to get the aircraft out in one piece and, and survive the accident and walk away, basically. OK, that's great. But how was your pre-flight? Could you have seen this? Should that aircraft have ever left the ground? if you had done what you were supposed to do. And a guy who holds a commercial certificate with thousands of hours, you would expect one that it was more thorough, but that same premise holds true for complacency. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I've been there, done that. I've flown this helicopter a lot. You just walk around, kick the tires and get in and go. So little things like that. And that's why even the most benign type events, and, and when you look at this, nothing's really benign in aviation safety and acts investigation, but 
in the grand scheme of things, when you have a, a, an issue like this, where it doesn't register high on the uh, criticality totem pole, um, there are still safety benefits. And, and I, I really hate people that say, well, there was nothing to be learned from that. There is everything to be learned from every single accident. But you don't know what you don't know until you investigate it. And oh, by the way, it has to be a thorough and methodical investigation to find out if there is, in fact, something that will benefit the aviation community. And this is a perfect example because there are so many things that could have been learned if they were put in this report. And by us talking about it, we're only hitting a very small audience that are educating and giving people something to look at when they read these reports, take it with a fine grain of, of sand, if you will. Um, just, you know, don't hang your hat on it because there could be missing issues that are important that could apply to you in your operation of whatever aircraft you're flying. There's a lot of lessons to be learned. And that's the way the three of us have been looking at these accidents. Where are those lessons learned that are being missed? And so um, I think this is a great accident to pull up. It was a great segue to really talking about the incompleteness of these reports and, and the probable causes. Brevity doesn't get you there. And just because you get behind the power curve at the NTSB because you're so many accidents behind and you need to get things off an investigator's desk and out of the office, that is a disservice, I believe, to the community, to the aviation community. And if this had been a fatal, well, I mean, even to this pilot, you know, I would sure want to know what put me in this position. <laughs> Who put me in this position? Why was I in this position? Because, you know, is that going to be something that I need to then check on, you know, a little more scrutiny when I do a pre-flight and things like that. So there's always something to be learned. Well, that's the key right there. All right. I, I say it at the end, you know, talk to a mechanic to see what to look for in your airplane when you're flying it. All right. So you can do a good pre-flight. We're in this thing together. All right. All of us are in this thing together. All of us are going to make it or break it together. But right now, we're spending a lot of money to keep the pilot safe. And we're not spending any in the hangar where there's risks to both the mechanic and to the pilot. So it's just very frustrating from where I sit. I just go crazy after reading this one. I get madder and madder uh, because we don't go out. And if I raise this, like I, I raised with... NTSB people at Oshkosh this year and last year and the year before. When I raise this, the very first thing out of their mouth, we don't have the resources. <laughs> $120 million buys me an awful lot of resources. <laughs> yeah, their payroll's $90 million. That still leaves $30 million to do investigations with. And especially yeah. when you're not doing as many investigations as you did 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yes, because they put this selection criteria in to supposedly get the real bang for the buck. I'm still waiting to see that bang for the buck because this is not a report that gives me a high level of bang for the buck. Yeah. So, well, and, gentlemen, I think this, this one was a good act. This one was so 10 years ago or nine, eight years ago, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? The reports that I've been reading lately looking for content for this show I know better. Oh, no, it's and that's why, 
that's why the article that was in the um, in in the USA Today back in 2014 and dating way back, if you look at the RAND report, that is um, the RAND group came in and dissected the NTSB, found all the issues. You read that report, everything just about in that report exists today, if not escalated to a higher level. And so, again, the question is, why? You got more money more people, you know, you've changed your criteria of what you're going to investigate so you can spend more time with these accidents, yet we're not seeing more time, not in the brevity of a report like this. So again, it's a trade-off, and and so the, you, you can't trade off safety, um, and it's just, it's, it is very frustrating. So Gentlemen, I think you picked a good accident this week to uh, to talk about, and uh, I'm sure that we will be finding a few more of these as uh, as time goes on, because that's what this show is all about. Um, well, we we need to thank the Brits for that because they're the ones that sent this one to me, because we would never have found it if they didn't identify it. And, and why? And, they, frankly, and, why and frankly, they, they were laughing at us at the at the quality of this report. That's why they raised it with me. Was the quality, and they were they were giving me a little bit of crap because they thought it occurred while I was still at the board, mm. so I was able to talk plea and say, "Ah, I wasn't there." I but it's painful to see this. Painful when you have a when you have an organization that their sole purpose and mission is to conduct thorough and methodical investigations for not only determining the probable cause, so you have some conclusionary type information, but it's really to develop and derive out of the available information, safety issues that can be improved. That's called the safety recommendation process. And <clears throat> even if it isn't a formal safety recommendation, just addressing things that address safety, policies, procedures, training, you know, reemphasizing certain things. If it's put in the body of the report, anybody that pulls this report, it becomes a learning lesson for them. So, well, my friends, uh, as always, Todd, I will leave you with the second to the last word before we turn it over to the master. Well, today we have, I think, rightfully uh, raked NTSB over the coals, but I have to remind the audience that the NTSB is a world-class premier organization for investigating aviation accidents. This report is not an example of world-class. This report is not an example to follow. Please up your game in the future. And John, following those wonderful words, because I had to hold myself from laughing, um, but I will leave you with the last word. And as always, if you're going to go flying, pre-plan your flight. Before you leave your house or your hotel room, plan your flight. When you get to the airport, do it again. Make sure you're looking at the weather here, there, and everywhere in between. When you go out to your airplane, and this is a good example, this accident's a good example, you go out to your airplane, look it over. You know what, even pilots tell me that, well, they don't know what they're looking at. But if you were to look this over and this bracket were loose, that means the nut's gonna be out, it's gotta be hanging, drooping. Right? And it's, everything's out in the open on this one. It probably should have been turned, uh, observed or observable. So, I mean, I don't know what people look at at these. One of, the, one of the shortfalls in our industry right now is there's no good material for pre-flights. 
Many manuals don't have a word in them about what's it that you should include in a pre-flight. It's left up to you. That's why I tell our listeners, if you haven't done that, a good pre-flight, you want to do a good pre-flight, get a mechanic that works on the airplane regularly and have them walk around and tell you what a good flight pre-flight is. And after you do the pre-flight and get in the airplane, make sure you pre-flight the interior as well. Switches get moved, circuit breakers get popped. All right, take a good look. When you get off the ground, put that head on a swivel because we're still, I still see mid virtually every month there's some form of a damage, either on the ground or in the air, with people that didn't see things that were obvious. So please put that head of yours on a swivel, look everywhere, and fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives, and remember to always fly safe.